Well, hey there, and welcome to the New Freedom Podcast. I am Dakota, your host, and I thank you for joining in with us again today. If you'd like to learn more about us and our continual mission to give grace and share hope, you can find us online at newfc.org, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Today, Pastor Joe will be continuing his series, Ripple Effect. Today, he will be talking about our thought lives. Our thought lives are important because everything that starts as a thought can eventually evolve into an action. What you set your mind to, what you have your heart set on, is very important. Setting them in the right direction can be powerful and lead to great change because the interactions we have with other people and allowing God to do great things in and through us. Let us join in now with Pastor Joe. Today we're on part two of Ripple Effect. How that one seemingly small difference in our lives can make a huge difference to all those around us. And I want to share with you today about our thought life, what we think about, what we entertain in our mind. Because what you think and what you believe about God, yourself, and other people will determine how you act and live this life. If you have a notion that God is angry, you will probably start acting and living like God is angry. If you have a notion that God is nice and kind, then you'll probably start acting and living like God is nice and kind. If you believe that God is somehow waiting to trip you up and to get even with you, then you'll always be looking over your shoulder trying to determine whether today is the day that God catches on. Well, I've got news for you. God knows it all. And the Bible tells us that even while we were yet sinners, that's when Christ died for us. So we're not getting anything over on him. We're not keeping anything from him. He knows it all, and yet he loves us to the infinite degree. I'm going to share some scriptures here in just a moment. And I want to tell you that the God of the Bible, the God that we serve, he is not a myopic, one-dimensional God that only operates in acts and a singular way, but he is a vast and big God. He is larger than anything we can think or imagine. And there are occasions where God has all of the attributes I just mentioned and many, many more. And so what I want us to look at today is a basis of scriptures that I want to go through to establish our thought life and to get into the crux of what it is that we're thinking about and how it is that we're looking at others and ourselves as we think through this life. Proverbs 23 and 7. I just want to hit several of these verses up front. I've highlighted some words for you to look at, and then I'll unpack it here in just a moment. But Proverbs 23 and 7 says, for as he thinks in his heart, so is he. Thought life, heart life. Romans 7, 25. I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord, so then with my mind, everybody say that, my mind, I myself serve the law of God, but the flesh the law of sin. Acts 20 and 19. Serving the Lord with all humility of, say it with me, mind and many tears and temptations which befell me by the lying in wait of the Jews. Romans 8 and 5, 5 through 7. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. Look at verse 6. For to be carnally minded is death. But to be spiritually minded is life and peace. How many would like to have life and peace? 
spiritually minded, you can have life and peace. Because, why? Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, or it is fighting, it is boxing. Enmity is against God. For it is not subject to the law of God, nor can it be. Can't be. Proverbs 4 and 23. This is the last one for now, and I'll share some more in a moment. Proverbs 4.23, above all else, somebody say that, above all else, guard your heart for everything you do flows from it. Now, uh, when I say heart, we oftentimes think of something that we would see on a Valentine card. We would see something like this. We would think about a heart. We'd, we'd think that's a heart, right? That's, that's what a heart is. Now, those of you that may be in the medical profession or those that may have had just recent brushes with some medical needs, I know we had uh, uh, Debbie is here with us today. She had heart surgery. Uh, Brother Derek is here today. He had a six bypass. So we think of a heart looking like this. And we say, that's our heart, right? So when we think of heart and we read heart in the scriptures, we think of one of these two pictures most time. I know I do. I think of the heart that the Bible is talking about must be one of these. In Hebrew, the word heart actually is giving an example of the inner life. It is the inner you. It actually would look something a little bit more like this. That is what the Bible is talking about when it says, guard your heart. It's saying, guard your thought life. Your heart is the central part of your thinking. It is the inner you. It is the real you. It is the you that I cannot see. We could see your heart. We could see it on a, on a scan of your body. We could see it if we were to open up a chest. We could see your physical heart, the vital organ of the muscle that's pumping blood throughout your body. We can see that, but we cannot see what the Bible is talking about in Hebraic literature is talking about your thought life. We may also see it as something like this. It's your prayer life. It's your spiritual life. So the heart that the Bible is talking about here and the mind have a direct connection because they are really one and the same. Craig Rochelle says this, your life will move in the direction of your strongest thoughts. Think about it. Your life will move in the direction of your strongest thoughts. What do you think about the most? Your feet will start to follow. Your life will start to end up looking like that. It is our heart, our thought life that we want to deal with. You know, strong emotions can cause your heart to race. It can cause your heart to pump blood faster. It can cause all kinds of medical issues that happen in your physiology just by having a thought that would cause your natural heart to react. Now, here's the thing. In Hebraic language, what they knew was that if blood stopped pumping through the heart, the body died. Is that true? That's still true, right? So even without all the modern technology that we have today, they knew that if the heart would stop, that life stops. And here's where they took the parallel. They said this, if you stop thinking, pondering, reflecting, having introspection before God, if you stop really processing this thing through, your inner you, your thought life, your spiritual life will shrivel up and it will die. This is the parallel that they're making. The thought life is the life of you I cannot see in blowing, as it takes a snowflake and pushes it down to the flesh, but after what? The spirit. And so it is the unseen things that cause the ripple effects that can be seen in our life. What are we thinking about? That's what we want to look at this morning. As a person thinks in their heart, so are they. Therefore, 
if you are consumed with negative worldly passions, it means that you are moving in the wrong direction in life. It means that eventually you will find yourself at a place in life that you didn't intend to get there. You didn't want to be there. It's been said before that if you will follow the ways of God, your life will turn out in a place of peace and prosperity for life. Not having a lot of money, but end up having the prosperity and the peace of life. Because to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Someone else said, if you will take a page from the devil, the devil will take you further than you want to go, he'll cost you more than you want to pay, and he'll keep you longer than you want to stay. And if you allow those thoughts to continue to permeate in a negative and worldly way, that's where you're going to end up. Let's look at Jesus' words in Matthew 25. Let's get a a taste for what Jesus said about this. This is a scene that was set with a test that the religious elite of the day were going to spring a trap before Jesus. And they thought if we can be real clever about this, then we can trip him up in his words and we'll have a reason to accuse him. And then we'll be able to dismiss this prophet called Jesus. In verse 34, it says, But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. So in Jesus' day, there were, there were two factions of religious people. And they were all Jewish, but they had a hierarchy and class. And one was the Sadducees. And they were the ones that didn't even believe that there was a resurrection. So Jesus easily dismissed them, and, and he uh, outwitted them, I guess you could say, with the word. But then the Pharisees saw that, and they're the warring faction, and they said, okay, we see that he already trumped the, Fer- the, the Sadducees. Now we're going to come, and we're going to test him and try to trip him up. So when they saw this happen, it says that they took one who was a lawyer, verse 35, to ask him a question, testing him, saying, teacher... Which is the greatest commandment of the law? Now, this was, this was a trap that they were trying to set. You see, God had given his people ten commandments, not suggestions for living, but ten commandments. Somebody say the ten commandments still apply. If you don't believe that, just let me just cheat you, steal from you, rob from you, covet everything you have, lie to you. Okay, everybody still wants the Ten Commandments to apply for society. That's what the American society and judicial system was based upon. And if you would go to the halls of Congress today, you can see that as you walk into the House of the Representatives, as the middle door right across from the podium every single time that our Congress takes session, they are looking at the great lawgiver Moses as he's standing there with a picture and a plaque of the Ten Commandments. The ACLU has never been able to get it down. It's still there today. It's still there. It's still the foundation and basis. When you drove into the parking lot this morning, there was a plaque of the Ten Commandments. No, that's not where we buried the old pastors who died, okay? You know, that's not a memorial, but it is a plaque to the Ten Commandments to tell you that, yes, we understand that those still apply. However, what you probably did not see is there's a smaller stone down at the bottom, and it has a passage from John that says that the law came through Moses, we acknowledge that, but grace and truth through Jesus Christ. So the law still applies, but we have grace and we have truth, and that trumps everything. And we're about to find out right here because Jesus was being tested here. And they said, okay, Jesus, which is the most important law? Now, he knew that Ten of them were established. By the time that they asked this question, they had taken the simplicity of Ten Commandments, the law of God, and they had complicated it by adding 603 additional 
regulations to that. How many think sometimes that the modern-day church is kind of like the Pharisees a little bit? We take the simple gospel. Jesus died for you. You don't have to pay the price. All you have to do is believe by faith, and you are called a son and daughter of God. And we complicate it with, well, how long is your hair? How much makeup do you have on? How about that, that sleeve? Make sure you're sleeve. Do you have this? Do you do that? And we complicate the gospel with so many different outside regulations. When Jesus said, come unto me, all who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. That's what he said. He issues the call. Listen, you and I are just fishers of men. We're not cleaners of fish, okay? We need to cast the net and pull it in. I trust God to do the cleaning up. Amen. Amen. I can't convict you like the Holy Spirit can anyway. It's up to God to do the cleaning. It's up to us to do the fishing. He's never called us to be judges. We are called to be witnesses. And I want a witness of what he has done. And they had complicated this so much that they gave 603 additional commandments. And they thought for sure if they could get Jesus to commit to just one of them, then they would call him a heretic because all the others apply in their lives at this time. Look what Jesus does. He knows he's being tested. Jesus said to them, this is very uh, rare occurrence. Jesus very seldom in scripture ever answers directly a question. He normally will answer a question with a question. But this place, he gives a direct answer. He says this, you shall love the Lord your God, watch this, with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. This astounded them. Because even though Jesus directly answered the question, he didn't really answer the question. They were looking at this form of 613 thinking, okay, pick the best one, Jesus, because just as soon as you do, we're going to have a counter argument and you will have missed something very important. And Jesus says, listen, I'm going to give you an answer, but it's not going to be an answer you can trip me up on because Jesus went back further before the law and he said, love the Lord your God. In other words, here's what Jesus did. He got right down onto the foundational level, and he said, if you get this foundation right, if you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your mind, then it doesn't matter what happens to you in life. Your neighbor can't offend you bad enough that would cause you to want to take advantage of them. If you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, then it doesn't matter what kind of adversity comes to your life. You're not wishing ill on somebody else. If you love the Lord your God as a foundational level, every other law is going to come into place because you're surrendered unto God. And Jesus astounded the attorneys and the lawyers of his day, the greatest teachers of the law, by taking it back to the foundational level of loving God. But he didn't stop there. You know, Jesus, he gave another command. He said, and the second one, if, if one isn't enough, the second one is like unto it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Now, many of us have rewritten that in American culture to say, do unto others as they're getting ready to do unto you because you got to get them before they get you. And that's not what Jesus said at all. He said, do unto them as you would have them do unto you. And he put this in the vernacular they could understand. And Jesus took the power of thinking Somebody just needs to point right up here to your temples. Jesus took the power of thinking to the greatest intellectuals of his day, the religious crowd and the attorneys, and he demonstrated to them 
what God's law was all about. Listen, you do not have to check your intellect at the door in order to become a Christian. You don't have to just blindly accept this thing by faith. It's okay, let me free somebody, it's okay to have some doubts. It's okay to wrestle with some of these deep truths of God. I still do. I am a self-confessed overthinker. I think it and think it and think it. I think through it so much. In fact, I would say that if you haven't had a little bit of struggle with faith, you've probably not really stood before the Almighty God. I mean, I can accept Jesus by mental assent. I can accept that what he did for me on the cross, but there are some, some, the gospel is very simple. I can accept that by faith, but there are some things in this world that confound me, that amaze me, that astound me, that cause me to wrestle and say, God, why did this happen to them? Why did this happen over there? Why do you permit that? Why didn't you intervene here? Why didn't you heal them when we prayed? Why, why, why? I overthink it. But God's okay with that because he never asked me to check my intellect or to check my mental capacity at the door when I came to faith in Jesus. The great author C.S. Lewis was foundational in Christian thought for the 20th century, and C.S. Lewis was a giant intellect, so much so that he, in his early days of learning, was an atheist and set out to disprove the claims of the Bible, thought that if he could just disprove central tenets like the resurrection, then the entire Christian faith would fall like a house of cards. Can I tell you that in his pursuits of trying to disprove the resurrection, it actually led him to a real living faith in Jesus Christ. And he became a great Christian author. Things like mere Christianity and the screw tape letters were written as a result of him coming to a place of faith. The book Problem, The Problem of Pain the great divorce, which is the realities of heaven and hell. These great things were authored by a man who used his intellect to think through the processes of God. Someone said, yeah, I've wrestled with certain things and the, the concept of hell just really, it defies my logic. How can a good God, how can a loving God send people to hell? I just can't grasp it. I can't understand it. I don't want to accept it. Listen, that is a tough concept to grasp, but can I tell you that hell is not anywhere as tough to grasp as the reality of heaven. It's one thing to understand how that an almighty, all-powerful God can take his enemies and subject them to torture, but how is it that an almighty, good, loving God can take his enemies and translate them into heaven? That is a tough concept to understand. And all because of something they didn't do, but because of what he provided the way to do, he did it by faith. He sent his son Jesus to be our ransom for sin. He sent his son Jesus to be our propitiation, the one to stand in our place and to take the death he did not deserve. I can't understand it. I can't fathom it. But yet it's reality. Yes, heaven is real. Yes, hell is real. And hell is a whole lot worse than we've ever preached it. And heaven's a whole lot better than we've ever believed it. I want to be in that place with God. Jesus brings it down to say, you can love the Lord your God with your inner life. You see, here's what happens. 
The Holy Spirit comes to warm your heart and inform your intellect. It takes both. It's not just a head faith. I can't just accept that, yeah, Jesus was a real person. The Bible tells us that the demons themselves believe and they tremble, but that's not enough. I have to take that next step and say, I accept his sacrifice. I will make that sacrifice my own as an act of faith. Look at verse 41. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them. He asked them a question. Look at this. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to him, the son of David. What do you think about the Christ? What do you think about the Christ? This is, I want to say, this is the most probing question in all of the New Testament. Because each and every one of us, every person who has ever lived and ever walked on the face of this earth is going to be confronted with this question, who do you say that Jesus is? And Jesus asked the religious crowd, what do you think about the Christ? They didn't ask him, what do you, he didn't say, what do you think about Jesus? There were a lot of little boys in Jerusalem that were named Jesus in the first century. He didn't ask them, what do you think about Jesus? He said, what do you think about the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one, the one and only sent from God? What do you think about him? And they gave an answer. But this wasn't the first time that Jesus posed this question because you have to go back to Matthew 16 and see that Jesus also had an encounter with his very own disciples revolving around this question. Now, this is a question to think about. Everybody say, think about realize that your thoughts leave ripple effects. Jesus asked his disciples this question in, in Matthew 16, 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples saying, who do men say that I, the son of man, am? So they said, some say that you're John the Baptist, some Elijah, others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And then he asked them this, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the anointed one with his anointing, the yoke remover, the burden breaker. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And my question to you today is, who do you say that Jesus is? In your thought life, what do you think about the son of God? Have you thought about it? Maybe you haven't thought much about it, Today, you have an opportunity to think about it and to decide. I can't read your mind, but by the way that you think about God, I can see just like how the wind blows something another direction where you're heading. What are you thinking about God today? Matthew 16 and 17, Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Let me ask you this. The word revelation came out there. God had revealed this. Flesh and blood hadn't revealed it. You ever had one of those moments where you're like, ah, that's it. It's called a revelation. Does that come as a result of your book learning or, or, or just an experience? It can, but a revelation happens in your thought life. A revelation happens when something dawns on you. Oh, it never dawned on me before. It came to Simon because of what he had done walking with Jesus. He had experienced the risen Christ for himself, and he was able to think through this thing and say, you know what? I now realize the revelation has come that you are the Christ. 
He said, flesh and blood hasn't revealed this, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter. Now, this is important because he got a name change. And here's what will happen. When you start really thinking about God, God will change your name. God will change your name. I don't mean on your birth certificate. I mean in the heavenlies, God will give you a heritage, an identity, that you will start walking out what God has called you to be from the beginning. And he changed his name. And he said, on this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Can I tell you that hell cannot prevail against the church of Jesus Christ, which is triumphant in all that it does always. We're not going down, we're going up. Oh, and I like this next part. He says, and I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind, the word is forbid, on earth will be bound, forbidden in heaven. And whatever you loose, permit, on earth will be loose, permitted in heaven. He said, I give you keys. I've given you the keys of the kingdom. Keys denote authority. There is in the hands of the holder the authorization to enter a certain place, to unlock the door and go in and access what it is behind the door. And Jesus told Peter, and as an extension, he tells us, I have given you the keys of the kingdom. Now, Jesus did not give Peter literal physical keys. If he had, they'd be hanging up somewhere in the Sistine Chapel, and people would go and pay homage to them and worship them today. That's why he didn't give them. You know, that's another reason I believe that Jesus never wrote anything to paper, because we would worship it. We would make an idol out of it. The only time you ever see Jesus writing was in the sand. He wrote in the dust, and then it blew away. But you know what we are? We're just dust. I don't want to blow away. I want him to write in the sand of my life. I want him to write on the heart, the tablet of my heart, so that I don't just have to consult a book whether I should go left or right, but I can have the living God instructing my heart because his word is like a fire shut up in my bones, and I have to say it. I have to do it because he's written it there. He's put it there. So these aren't physical keys, but I, I, I bring out the keys to say every one of these keys are different size, different shape, they're different length. And here's what I think that Jesus is saying to Peter. He's saying, I have given you some intangibles. I've given you some things which you cannot necessarily hold with your hands, but you can definitely apply in your life. It is the keys of the kingdom. And therefore, whatever you permit in your thought life is permitted in your real life. Whatever you forbid from happening and coming in is forbidden in your real life. And, you know, your thought life, your mental capacity may just be this little key right here. But there are some other keys of the kingdom, like there's a key of forgiveness. And if you can't be forgiving to others, then the Bible says God can't forgive you. Not that he can't, it just is a principle. It won't work. It's a kingdom key. There's another one that is, I believe, the key of sowing and reaping. The Bible says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. God's not going to be made look like a fool. God's not going to be a liar. Whatever a man sows, that he shall also reap. But can I tell you that God has a cancellation insurance, and it's called the blood of Jesus. He can cancel the effect of everything you've ever sown in your life. You just say yes to him. Amen. It's a spiritual truth. I will tell you what one guy said. He, he, he came, I remember, probably 20 years ago. I won't use his real name. We'll call him Tim. Tim got radically born again. He was, he was riotous in his living, and, and he just got radically born again. He joined our church choir. And I remember him sitting there in choir one night after I was the, I was the choir chaplain. 
That's where I got my start in ministry. I was a choir chaplain. I was a choir boy, okay? Now, I've not been a choir boy all my little life, but I was a choir boy then. God did a mighty work to change this into a choir boy, I will say. But God took Tim, and he changed him tremendously. I mean, you couldn't even tell a difference. There was a smile on his face. He had such a joy in his life. And I'll never forget one day after the devotion, right before we were getting ready to sing, he said, I just want to thank God for all that he's done for me. He saved me. He took care of me. He did all of these things. And then he stopped. Everybody clapped. But he said, now I will say this, God forgives, but the bank don't forget. <laughs> Isn't that true? Spiritually speaking, God can cancel the harvest of the bad seeds that you've sown, but these are keys of the kingdom. These are things that if you operate in them, if you operate in kindness, it is a key of the kingdom. If you operate in doing unto others as you would have them do unto you, these are keys of the kingdom. And it's what you're permitting in your thought life, it's what you're permitting in your natural life that will happen in your physical life. And someone wonders, they they ask, they say, Pastor, I came to the Lord, I I came to Jesus, and things got worse. Let me just tell you, I am sorry that somewhere in Bible school, somebody lied to you. That they told you that if you just come to Jesus, everything is going to turn up puppies and rainbows. Everything is going to be tulips and and wonderful, just tiptoe through all the tulips. I am sorry someone lied to you because Jesus said that in this world, you're going to have tribulation. But be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. That's right. If the fight of your life has intensified as a result of you becoming a Christian, let me tell you what's happening. The keys denote authority. And Satan has come to your life, and he knows you have dominion, but he's asking to see whether you know you have dominion. He wants to know if you know your true identity. Because even though you have these keys, Jesus gave them to Peter as an extension, gave them to us. If you don't know you have this authority, you'll not walk in this kind of freedom. And therefore, when, the, when Satan comes around trying to tempt you and test you and try to talk you out of what you know God has done for you, what you have to do is what the old song said, when Satan comes a knocking, showing me an easier way, I just put my head up in the air, I look him straight in the eye, I say my foot's on a rock and my mind is made up. I got the keys and I've got authority in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Binding and loosing corresponds directly to 2 Corinthians 10.5. Turn there with me. 2 Corinthians 10.5. Actually, verse 3. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons, get this, of our warfare are not carnal. Somebody say amen. I'm glad that the weapons of my warfare are not based upon my strength. They're not based upon my intellect. They're not based upon whether or not I can make it happen. But they are mighty. Somebody say mighty. Mighty in God for the pulling down of strongholds. The word stronghold here is like the the old uh, mindset of a dungeon. This is like a prisoner locked in a dungeon. This is what Paul is talking about. These strongholds are the lies that the enemy has told you about yourself and about others that lock you in a prison of thought. Who's in charge around here? Who's in charge around here? The person with the keys is in charge around here. Let me ask you this. Who's in charge around here? Who's in charge around here? You're in charge around here. 
You determine what gets locked up in here or what gets set free. And there are some lies that you have believed, that you have imprisoned your own self into these lies. And this is what the apostle is saying. You have to cast down arguments in every high thing that exalts itself against what? The knowledge of God. Think about what you're thinking about. God is God of your intellect. He is God of your thought life. He is God of your inner life. And then we bring every what? Huh. Every thought. I serve the Lord with my mind. The battleground is in your mind. It's not out there. Listen, as an overthinker, I have made way more enemies out there than what really exists because I've made them in here. Bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. People come into a church. They expect that everybody in here is safe and nobody's going to hurt their feelings and the preacher's always going to shake their hand and as soon as the preacher is in a hurry and he runs down the hallway, they say, see, I know he never liked me anyway. Never talks to me no more. I heard he visited so-and-so in the hospital two weeks ago. Well, I went to go get my hangnail removed and he never came to my hospital. And we build enemies in our mind. We think that other people are out to get us. We, we think that because they didn't look to us, they didn't say something to us, we build up all these strongholds. And the Bible says you bring those thoughts into captivity. You arrest those thoughts and you bring them to Christ. And you're a charge around here. I want to close with Numbers chapter 13. This is the grand story of a self-limiting thought life, how that it can impact a ripple into an entire nation. In the book of Numbers, we find that God's people had been mightily delivered through the Red Sea. They're now in the wilderness wandering around for their life. And it says that there were 12 spies given to go look at the land, to go spy out the land. Of those 12 spies, only Joshua and Caleb came back with a positive report. Get this. The majority report said, don't go in. Don't even think about it. There are giants in that land. They are going to destroy us. You can't go into that land. That's the majority report. Now, I know that in most places in democratic American society, the majority wins. But can I tell you, that what is popular is not always right, and what is right is not always popular, and the majority does not always win. In this case, the majority won. Amen. I love what's recorded here because after hearing both sides, the minority of just two that said, we are well able to overcome God has promised us that land. Let's go take it. Let's possess the land God has promised to us. If God has promised it to you, then you can do it. If you have dreamed it up and you have cooked it up and you have made it up, then it's maybe it could happen, maybe it couldn't. God hadn't promised that. But God had promised them the land. Look at verse 33. It says this, There we saw, okay, they were using their eye gate to look, to process through their thinker, through their mind, what they saw. There we saw the giants the descendants of Anak, who came from giants, and we were like grasshoppers, how? In our own sight. I added that mental image. 
They were like grasshoppers in their mental image, self-defeating, self-limiting. And so we were in their sight. People largely will see you the way you see yourself. If you see yourself as busted, disgusted, broken, in turmoil all the time, people are going to see you, and they're going to run the other way because they got enough drama of their own. They don't need to borrow any trouble from you. You ever called somebody, you really got a heavy heart, and you just can't wait to unburden it, and as soon as you call, they say, oh, I'm so glad you called. You will not believe what happened to me today, and they go on for the next 20 minutes, and you say, okay, I'll pray for you, and you hang up the phone, and you were there to unburden yours. The way you see yourself is largely the way other people will see you. That's why you need to have the right identity. You need to know who you are in Christ. You need to know what your heritage is. You need to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you are saved, you're born again, and that you are on your way to heaven. And God has done an amazing thing in your life. And you'll walk different. You'll talk different. You will think differently you surrender it to him. Now, I'm not talking about arrogance or being cocky or having an attitude. I'm talking about a confidence, a firm foundation, the anchor for your soul that Jesus is in control. That's what I'm talking about. In other words, it's like this. Whether you think you can or you think you can't, you're right. If you think you won't, you probably won't. If you think you can, you might. But I know this, God can. God is able. I want you to do a thought audit this week. I want to encourage you to think about what you're thinking about. Just audit your thoughts. And I got one more. This is Bible on it. Philippians 4. Finally. Somebody said, boy, I'm glad he said finally. It's after 12 o'clock. I'm glad he said finally. Paul said, finally, who? My brothers, my sisters. This is for the church. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, if it's not true, it's not you, okay? Don't repeat it. Whatever is noble, if it's not noble, don't talk of it. Whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, If anything is excellent or praiseworthy, what does he say? Think. Think. Think on that. Why? Because wherever your thought life is, your feet are sure to follow. It's a 100% fact. Out of the abundance of the heart does your mouth speak. Guard your heart, for out of it flows the issues of life. God wants you to think about it. He wants you to think about the good things. The bad things are like weeds. They will always crop up. Bad and negative thoughts always crop up. A bad thought is not sin. It's just a bad thought. It's a temptation. And temptation is not sin. It's a temptation. It's yielding to and giving into that thing, which becomes a sin. Some of you today, you are just one thought away from totally and completely changing the trajectory of your life. If you think about it, many of us have lived like buzzards. I know I had for a long time, I lived like a buzzard. You know what a buzzard does? A buzzard's a scavenger. He'll find roadkill and he'll go there and he'll eat. And you know, 
He finds what he's looking for almost every single day because they're very healthy. But God wants to make us like hummingbirds. You know what a hummingbird does? You'll never see a hummingbird swarming around roadkill. He goes to the sweetest spots. He looks out for the nectar. He puts his beak right in that nectar, and he sucks all the sweetness out of that flower. And then he goes on to the next And he goes on to the next. He finds the next good thing to sup from. And God doesn't want you being a buzzard anymore. God wants you being a hummingbird. Amen. And I didn't call you a bird brain either. Don't be telling people the preacher called me a bird brain. I'm telling you, there is an abundant life to live. But if your mental picture is of some angry God trying to get even at you, someone lied to you. And it may have been you that lied to you. And you need to come to the realization that we serve a good God, a loving God, a God who sent his own son to die while you were yet a sinner. That's a good God. Mercy and grace is preaching today, but just off stage, all of us are gonna exit this life. And then we're gonna stand before the Holy One and we're gonna have to give account for the deeds that we have done in this life. There's gonna be one question that's asked. What did you do with my son, Jesus? What do you think about Jesus? Hey, we thank you for listening in today, and we hope that this message has encouraged and impacted you in some way. If it did, I want to encourage you to get involved with NSC in some way. There are a few ways you can do that. First, you can subscribe to our podcast. We upload a new message each and every week, and when you subscribe, our content will automatically show up in your feed. You can also help us continue to spread the message of Jesus around the world by your giving. You can do so at newfc.org giving. We want to continue to make an impact for Jesus every day, and your support is vital to our mission, and we thank you for that. Lastly, make sure to check us out on Facebook and Instagram at newfc.church and go check out our YouTube channel. Stay up to date with us, get daily encouragement, all from all of our online platforms. Well, that is all for today, and we will see you next week right here on the New Freedom Podcast.